what we are celebrating here at Christmas is the birth, right? Is the coming of Jesus into the world. And what we're celebrating here in baptism is, is the recognition and the acknowledgement of, of the new birth and of what God has done in, in these two ladies' lives. Um, and this is it's extremely encouraging and exciting to do that here um, on Christmas um, Sunday. And then to get to invite five new people and to covenant together and join them in membership, uh, listen, this is extremely encouraging um, Sunday. This should be a party. Um, this, is, this is a very good... Um, thing. Um, so we should be excited about what God is, is doing here. Um, but it is Christmas. Um, we, you know, we've, got, we've got to get into the Word, right? It, it's all about the Word. The Word is the point. Um, so go ahead and open your Bibles to, to Mark chapter 9. Um, Mark 9, verses 1 through 13. So, you know, on the Sunday before Christmas, right, you know, this is Christmas Sunday. You know, we usually do, most people do, you know, a sermon from, you know, Luke 1 or 2 or, or Matthew 1 or 2, some one of those kind of classic Christmas text. But if you've been here for a while, you know, you've heard me speak multiple times about the, the benefits and the importance of expositional preaching. Right? Remember, all that means is preaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Right? And the great benefit of that is, is, is then we're talking about and hearing what God wants us to talk about in here instead of what you know I want us to talk about in here. And, and that's a good thing for all of us, right? That you're not dependent on me to come up with what we're talking about. But when you do it in this way, um, sometimes things just line up beautifully. And Joanna noticed a couple weeks ago coming up that, that we could have this text here on Christmas Sunday. And I think this is the absolute perfect text um, to go into um, today, right? Because this is, I think, a brilliant Christmas text. Because Christmas, right, is the celebration of the incarnation, right? Which is God himself taking on flesh, becoming a man, and coming to earth. Our passage this morning is the transfiguration, right? And the two things are intimately linked. How is that, right? Well, that's what I want to talk about here for the next few minutes. If you've ever heard me talk about Christmas, I guarantee my wife's rolling her eyes because um, I talk about it a lot. Um, she says, she calls me a Grinch, um, but it's all right. I accept that. But if you've ever heard me talk about it, you've heard me talk about how, listen, it's not about all the things that we make it about. Right? It's not Santa Claus, it's not trees and lights and presents and fun songs and, and family and days off work and all those things. All those things are fine and good. It's not even really about all the tiny little details that we add to the Christmas story. The wise men at the manger, they weren't there. All right? They showed up about two years later. Mary riding on a donkey. That's just not in the Bible. We just made that up and added that as well, right? Um, you know, them just kind of getting to Bethlehem at the last minute. She's about to have the baby. What do we do? That's just not in the Bible either. They've been there for a little bit of time already. The Bible says Jesus was never born in a stable, right? That's never mentioned. We, we've added that, right? It never mentions any animals being at the birth as well. You know, that's just not in the Bible. We, we've added that. The point is, and listen, some of you don't believe me, I can see it. Just go read it. You know, go read Luke chapter 2. It's there, I promise. All right? But the point is that we've added all of these kind of extra little details and all of this little intrigue to try to make the story interesting and exciting and fascinating. But to do that betrays the fact that we haven't really understood just how interesting and fascinating and significant this story is by itself. Because Christmas celebrates the Incarnation. Right? And the great mystery of the Incarnation is that this one that was born, Jesus Christ, was fully God and fully man. And this is, this is so important. Right? The, the whole faith falls apart if Jesus is not fully God and fully man. 
And that's what I want to look at this morning in this passage on the transfiguration, on the day that we celebrate the incarnation. Right, the incarnation is about the humanity of Jesus, that he is fully man, that he is just as human as you or as I am. The transfiguration is about the deity of Christ, that he is fully God, just as much God as Yahweh God the Father is. So I want us to see this morning in our passage, um, and in Christ, how these two strands come together in one person. Right, I want us to see his great glory and his great power that he reveals in the transfiguration, alongside his great humiliation and weakness in the incarnation. And listen, by humiliation, I don't mean like he was embarrassed or like, you know, we get ashamed and we say something stupid or do something dumb. That's not what humiliation means, right? The humiliation of Christ just kind of refers to his becoming man. It refers to him being brought low and the suffering and, and the death that he goes through, though he was God. So, glory and power on one hand, humiliation and weakness on the other. And we usually pit these two extremes against each other, right? But for Christ, we are going to see that glory comes through humiliation and power through weakness. And thus it, it does for us as well, right? So we're going to do this by, by looking at Mark chapter 9 there. Um, so look at your Bibles. It's page 845 on the pew, in the Pew Bibles if you haven't found it yet. So, so follow along as I read it. This is God's Word. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must first come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you um, for this beautiful day and this beautiful weather and just the, the blessing and the opportunity um, to celebrate um, the new birth in the lives of, of Jen and Jen. And we thank you for bringing these new um, five people into membership here. I pray that they would strengthen us and grow us and we would encourage them um, as well. Father, right now I pray that you would take away any distractions and um, that you would focus our minds on your word and on your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Now, before we really kind of get into the meat of the text, we need to kind of get something out of the way first. I'll, I'll confess to you up front that there's just a lot of debate over verse 1. All right, look there at verse 1 
Um, people are trying to figure out what exactly Jesus is talking about there. Critics love to point to this verse and say that, that Jesus was wrong, and thus he can't be God, and thus the whole Christianity thing falls apart, right? So pretty, uh, a lot riding on this one little verse. So they argue that seeing the kingdom of God coming in power must refer to the second coming of Jesus. Well, they say Jesus didn't return during the life of his disciples. He still hasn't returned 2,000 years later, so he was wrong. Right? Well, what do we do with this? Right? Well, I think the solution is simple. That, that Jesus here is not talking about the second coming. Right? He's talking, what does he say? He's talking about the kingdom of God coming in power. And think all the way back to Mark chapter 1. What were the very first words out of Jesus' mouth? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. In the gospel. Right, so this whole time, these eight chapters, we've been making the case that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? And one of the three functions of the Messiah is that he is the king. And as king, he is bringing about and establishing his kingdom. And we've defined the kingdom of God simply as the rule and the reign of God. It is where God is in charge. Right? It's not a physical kingdom on earth, right? Jesus isn't building a castle and, and setting out these boundaries for this new kingdom. No, he's inaugurating the reign of God in the hearts and the lives of his people. And that has started to happen with the coming of Jesus. Right? This is what is referred to as the, the already not yet um, of the kingdom. It has already started to come with Christ, but it has not yet come fully. So it seems that, that what Jesus is saying here in this first verse is not related to kind of like one specific thing or one period of time. It is a general reference to everything that is going to happen starting in the very next verse with the transfiguration. Right? And then it will continue with his resurrection and his ascension. That is the kingdom continuing to come in power. And then it will continue on with the growth of and the explosive success of the church. That's the kingdom coming in power. So Jesus is telling his disciples that they will get to see and witness some of that. Though every single one of them would give up their lives for the sake of the gospel before they would see the kingdom fully come in power. So, I don't think this is a reference to the second coming of Jesus, and thus the critics are wrong that Jesus is wrong. He, he wasn't wrong, right? We... You know, one of the important things we think Jesus was never wrong. He was sinless. He was without error. He, he promised that he would return, but he never tells us when he would return. Right? And to try and read the times, to try and speculate and figure out, there's all these weird books out there like, oh, he's coming in 2018 on May 30th. Right? Listen, this has been done over and over again throughout the history of the church. And every single time it's led to great embarrassment for the church. Right? We don't know when he's coming back. Right? If someone tries to tell you that they know when Jesus is coming back, just point them to Matthew 24, verse 36, where Christ says that he doesn't even know the day or the hour, and we don't either. Right? So, so that's the first verse. Right? And, and the chapter right before that is actually a terrible spot, because that goes with what we talked about two weeks ago. But I wanted to kind of save it as a transition into what we're going to focus on this week. He says the kingdom is going to come in power, and then we get a taste, just a tiny little taste of that power coming here in our passage. 
Right, so kind of turn to the rest of it. We're going to see here in the transfiguration at the beginning. I want to first focus on the great glory and the great power of Jesus. Remember, he, he takes Peter, James, and John. They're kind of like the inner circle, the, the, the three. He takes them up on a mountain. And at the end of verse 2, it says quite simply um, that he was transfigured before them. All Mark tells us is that his, his clothes became radiant and intensely white. They were shining forth. Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus' face changed and in itself kind of shined forth his glory. John, who was one of the three that was there and witnessed the transfiguration, he, he tells us about this in John 1.14. He says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what the transfiguration was about. Jesus changed and revealed to them His glory. In the Greek, the word transfigured is the word metamorpheo. Right, what does that sound like, right? That's where we get our word metamorphosis. Right? And every little kid in elementary school learns about caterpillars and metamorphosis and how through this process they become a beautiful butterfly, as Emma's book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, says. Right? It's a fantastic book. I highly recommend it. That's what metamorphosis is. That's the word transfigured. Jesus changed forms and revealed his true nature, his glory, and his divinity. They got this, this tiny, short little taste of who he really was. That's the transfiguration. He's, he's changed, he's transformed before their eyes. But I want you to think, just kind of for a second, about what's going on here. Right? Jesus, if you think about it, he isn't really changing, right? He isn't adding on something that he didn't already have. And he is simply reassuming, he is simply kind of pulling back the curtain for a second and revealing the glory that he has always had. In John 17, 5, Jesus prays to God, he says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So in a way, I think it is a mistake to call this event in our passage the Great Transfiguration. Right? Because today, this Sunday, we are celebrating on Wednesday what was the Great Transfiguration. Right? The Great Metamorphosis had already taken place 30 years before this, on that fateful night in Bethlehem. When his glory, his, his deity, willingly chose to be veiled and clothed in flesh. When, when God the Son becomes a man, a baby, and was born into the very world that he himself had created. And this is what Paul writes about in the second chapter of Philippians, in verses 6 through 8. Paul writes about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. That was the great and unimaginable transfiguration. That is what we are celebrating this season, God becoming man. And we cannot even begin to comprehend it or how that is possible. We're not amazed by it today anymore because we have such a small picture of God. But God, Yahweh, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this God, this one true God, 
the originator and creator of everything, the, the sustainer of everything. He holds up the billions of stars in the palm of his hand. He is infinitely great and powerful and good and glorious. It is this God that 2,000 years ago was born into the world the same way that any one of us were. He probably weighed about six pounds. He screamed and he cried and he nursed. He was helpless. He required others to, to change him and to burp him and to feed him. He was a baby just like baby VJ, just like baby Joe Rue. He was a little baby boy. Infinite power and control. Life itself curled up asleep on his mother's chest in the form of a newborn child. That is an unbelievable transfiguration. That is what should amaze us and make us wonder this Christmas. God himself taking on flesh and becoming like us. Have you ever been staggered by this truth? Has this truth ever just bowled you over and led you to worship? The great transfiguration had already happened, and we are celebrating it here this week. Our passage this morning is, is simply a momentary glimpse, a taste of that eternal glory that was temporarily veiled in humanity. Jesus was simply showing his true self in our passage this morning. He was revealing the greatness and the glory that he had always possessed. He is showing himself to not just be a teacher, to not just be some prophet, to not just be the Messiah, but to be God himself. Jesus Christ, fully God. That is one of the key truths of the Christian faith. Right? If he is not God, then all of this is pointless. Right? The divinity of Christ is essential to Christianity. I enjoy, you may have noticed, I like to rip on Santa Claus. Right? I, just, I think it's fun. Right? I've never quite understood the whole Santa Claus thing. I'm not opposed to it. You're welcome to do it um, if you want. Um, but I've never quite understood the allure of the myth. But, but what I do really like is the man that the myth is based upon. All right, listen, yes, Santa Claus is real. Absolutely. His name was Nicholas of Mira. Right? And Mira was a town in, in what is present-day Turkey. Right? So way over Eastern Europe, just above Israel there, Greece, then big Turkey. That's where Nicholas lived. Right? And Nicholas was, he was a pastor. Right? And Nicholas loved Jesus. He lived in the 4th century, right? So about 300 years after Jesus, about 1,700 years ago. And we have all of these stories and legends, and over the years, just all this stuff has been added on and built up to become this kind of, this legend that we have today. But we have a lot of other true stories about him, and my favorite one revolves around what we're talking about. It revolves around this issue of the deity of Christ. Now, I've mentioned to you before, on this extremely important event, in the history of the church that happened in the year 325. Right, and this was called the, the Council of Nicaea. Right, the Council of Nicaea was like the first worldwide gathering of, of pastors from all over the known world where they came together to meet and to talk and to address some issues in the church. Right, sadly, we can't get into all the details, but primarily they gathered on this one occasion because of one man, right, a man named Arius. And what had happened was basically up to this point, everyone kind of just understood and agreed that Jesus was God, that he shared God's glory. But then all of a sudden there at the beginning of the fourth century, this man named Arius popped up and he started 
teaching that, that Jesus was just another created being like you or like me. Right? That there was a time when Jesus did not exist, that he was not God, and that he did not share in God's glory. Well, this, this teaching was obviously so counter um, what the Bible said, and it was obviously so dangerous to the unity of the church that they gathered hundreds of pastors from all over the world to kind of discuss this matter and rule on this new teaching. Well, skipping a lot of just fascinating details, the story goes that Nicholas, right, old jolly Saint Nick, was at the Council of Nicaea. He was one of the pastors that was brought in to kind of sit in on these proceedings and, and rule on these things. And the story goes that, that he's sitting there, you know, they're in a big room, um, and he's sitting kind of towards the back, and he's, it's Arius is up front. Arius has a stage, and Arius is, is presenting his views to the emperor, kind of about what he believes and making his case. And the story goes that as Nicholas is sitting there, and he's just listening to Arius go on and on and on about how Jesus is not God, how he's just like us, he doesn't share any of God's glory, Nicholas just gets more and more and more frustrated. He starts to get a little visibly agitated. He, he start, he's getting frustrated. You can see him kind of trying to contain himself, but it gets to the point where he's, he loses it. He jumps up. In front of 300 or so pastors, he marches down to the beginning of this big church, Right in front of the emperor, he stands and he looks Arius in the face and he slaps him in the face. And he slaps him hard, right? Well, Arius, obviously, he appeals to the emperor. He's like, what? You, you can't do this. This is a little proceeding. This is a court case. So, so the emperor has Nicholas put away. He's excused from the rest of the proceedings. He's locked up. Right? But then shortly after that, everyone unanimously rules against Arius. They affirm biblically the divinity and the glory of Christ. Right? And they, they come, they, they release Nicholas, there are no charges, and it was pretty clear that the emperor had kind of enjoyed this little outburst of Nicholas in defense of his Savior. That, my friends, is the real Santa Claus. Right? He was a man who so desperately and dearly loved his Savior, who so recognized the importance of his divinity, who had spent years and years and years in jail, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he would not stand for anyone to get up and belittle his Savior, right? to deny the glory and the deity of his Christ. Do you understand, like Nicholas, the importance of the deity of Jesus? Do you see his great glory and power in our story this morning? Has it ever astounded you? Has it ever humbled you? Has it ever led you to worship? Because that is what the transfiguration is about. It is the revealing of Jesus' true glory and power. That he is the great and almighty God. All right, but that's not all this passage is about. Let's, let's keep moving through it. Yes, it's a great display of his glory and power. But there's something else going on here as well. We want to make sure and take note of the context in which this story happens. Think back to two weeks, maybe it was three weeks ago. Remember the climactic kind of point of, of the whole first part was a couple of weeks ago when we saw uh, Peter confess that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. Right? Mark had been building towards that for eight long chapters. And Peter gets it and he confesses it. But remember, Peter gets that he's the Messiah but he doesn't quite yet get what that means. Remember, he doesn't quite yet get what the Messiah has come to do. He doesn't understand the mission of Jesus. 
So Jesus tells him right after he confesses him. He says, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. Remember, Peter doesn't just misunderstand. He, he, he just flat out disagrees. He takes Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. He says, no way. Not suffering, not death, not for you. And Jesus very strongly puts Peter in his place. And it is right after that, right after he explains the mission of the Messiah, of the necessity of his suffering and death, that he then opens up and reveals to them his glory and the transfiguration. But then look down at verse 12 in your passage. What happens right after the transfiguration? Right? Well, Jesus says that it is written that the Son of Man, that's, that's Jesus, should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So what do we have? We have prediction of suffering, we have revelation of glory, and then another prediction of suffering. What? What's going on here? Well, Jesus is showing us, and Mark is masterfully composing this count to show us that suffering and glory are not incompatible as we often think they are today. They are not mutually exclusive. In fact, he is showing us that the path to glory leads through suffering. Suffering precedes true glory. Because notice what Peter does right after the transfiguration. Peter, he's just known for being, he's just kind of dumb. He was always putting his feet in his mouth, foot in his mouth. He's always making mistakes and saying silly things. Peter's a great encouragement um, to me because I do all of the same stuff. Um, but look, like, they're all terrified, it says. Peter doesn't know what to say. He just kind of mumbles. He stammers something out. He's like, oh, Rabbi, it's, it's good that we're here. Um, let us make three tents, one for you and, and one for Moses and one for Elijah. What does that mean? What is he talking about? Why does he say that? Well, well, many commentators think that Peter is again, just like he had previously, he's again implicitly resisting Jesus' teaching that he must suffer and die. All right, so Peter is seeing the revelation of this glory. All right, that's what they were all waiting for, remember? This great, big, powerful, glorious Messiah. So Peter sees it. He gets a taste of it. He's like, here it is. This is it. This is what I want. Let's, let's set up camp. Let, let's, let's do this thing. All right, but then what happens? God himself, the Father, shows up and kind of implicitly rebukes Peter. Peter says, listen, we can do this without the suffering and the death. Let's, let's set up camp here. And then God shows up and says... This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him about what? Well, everything, of course. But, well, he has just talked about the necessity of his suffering and death. And he's just about to talk about it again. Right, so the context of the transfiguration, sandwiched in between two predictions of suffering, alongside God's command to listen to Jesus, it, what it does is it, it surrounds the great glory and the power of Jesus with the equally great humiliation and weakness of Jesus. It weds these two strands together in the same way that the Incarnation does. The Incarnation weds together the deity and the humanity of Jesus. His glory and His humiliation. His power and His weakness. And this is exactly what we need and require. Jesus Christ Fully God and fully man. Last week, we looked at the proclamation of the angels, right? They come to the shepherds and they tell them that a Savior has been born. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas. But the question is how? 
How is he a savior? How does he save us? And the answer is by being fully God and fully man. By his glory and humiliation. By his power and his weakness. A few minutes ago we read Philippians 2. Jesus was in the form of God. That's the glory and the power. He was God. And it says he made himself nothing in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became nothing, um, taking on the form of a servant, a man. That's the humiliation and the weakness. But I didn't finish the verse on purpose. All right, the rest of verse 8 continues. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the answer. Jesus humiliated himself to the point of being strung up naked on a cross. The ultimate display of weakness. Why did he do it? Well, he did it for sinners like you and sinners like me. Listen, Christmas is never the end game. Christmas is never the point. Easter is. Easter is the point of Christmas. Jesus didn't just come and hang out. No, Jesus came to die for us. God looked into the world that he had created. He saw the great mess that we had made out of things, and he chose to do something about it. God knew what would happen if he didn't. He knew the rules, right? The punishment for sin is death. Any crime deserves punishment. And if you think about it, that punishment depends on the severity of the crime and on the significance of the person you commit the crime against. Listen, think about it. You're going to get in a lot more trouble um, if you punch the President of the United States in the face than you would be if you came and punched me in the face. Right? Listen, nobody cares if you punch me in the face. Please don't do it. But no one really cares because I'm not important and I'm not significant. But if you were to go punch Obama in the face, you would get locked up because he is extremely important and extremely significant in this country. Right? You see, the standing of the person that you commit the crime against determines the, the severity of the punishment. Well, well, crime against an infinitely perfect and holy and good God deserves a corresponding punishment. And that punishment, the Bible says, is death. It is eternal death. So God sees that all of us have sinned. He sees that we have all justly deserved and earned this punishment. We all deserve death. But, he, but the beauty and the glory of Christmas is that God decided to do something. The beauty of Christmas is that God decided to come. He decided to show up and take care of the problem for us. That's why Jesus was born. He was born to take our place and bear our punishment for us. And that's why, listen, Jesus was always talking about suffering and dying. People were like, come on, Jesus, lay off. Let's, uh, let's have this a little more positive, a little lighter. Let's, let's be a little happy. No! Because the very point that he came, the very reason he came, was so that he could suffer and die for sinners, for me and for you. Right? That's the point of Christmas. Easter is the point of Christmas. His suffering and his death is the point of his coming. Christmas is magical and significant, not because of all the fairy tales that we have created around it. It is magical because it is the coming of God himself 
into the world to take care of our problem for us. To save us. Our one great fear, death and separation from God, has been defeated for us by Jesus. Death no longer has any power over us. We, are no, long, we no longer have anything to fear because He is the Savior. And to be that Savior, He had to be both God and man. He had to be fully God so that He could represent us and stand in the place of other men and women. And He had to be fully God um, to, to, to qualify, to be, to be valuable enough. Only God Himself was valuable enough to, to pay the eternal debt owed by the millions of people that He died for. Go back one more time to Philippians 2. It's so strong. It's such a good passage. 8, remember, says he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Then verse 9 says this. Verse 9 says, therefore, therefore, because of this, because he did this, because he died on the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? It is glory through humiliation. The ultimate display of weakness. Jesus' death on a cross turns out to be the ultimate display of power. It is victory through defeat. It is life through death. It is glory through humiliation. It is power through weakness. This is the Jesus that we celebrate on Christmas. He's not just some teacher. He's not a pretty good guy with some nice ideas. He's not just another religious leader among many of them. He is utterly unique in the whole of history. He is the God-man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Infinite power and glory clothed and veiled in humanity. Power veiled with weakness. Glory hidden by humiliation. He has all of these things wrapped up in one. In the incarnation, he transfigures. He hides his power in weakness. But for a brief moment this morning, for these three um, apostles, and then for the rest of us for the next 2,000 years in the transfiguration, he, he changes back and he just gives us a hint. He gives us a taste and briefly shows us his great glory. One theologian I was reading as I prepared um, for this week, he writes this. He says, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it is a sham or a nonsense. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Are you living in the shallow world in between? Or are you living in light of the great truths of the incarnation and the transfiguration? Of both the great glory and power of Jesus, as well as his equally great humiliation and weakness. Because we require both. He is fully God come to earth in the form of a man for the purpose of saving his people. He is the great and glorious God veiled in flesh. He is the point of Christmas. But not only that, he is the, the point of life itself. He is life itself. 
And apart from Him, we have no hope. Do you know this Jesus? Do you know Him and His great power and weakness? That weakness was for you. His life and death was for the sake of sinners. One more time, Luke 2, verses 10 and 11. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's turn to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for what that represents. The, the coming of, of Jesus Christ into this world. Father, they're coming um, uh, for the purpose of living and suffering and dying in our place. Father, we confess our sin. We confess that we are all likewise sinners. We have all rejected you. We have all gone our own way. But we thank you that in Christmas, you come after us and your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you pursued us in spite of our sin and in spite of our rejection and making ourselves enemies of you. We thank you for the great love and the great mercy that you have shown us in your son, Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. As man standing in our place and, and taking on our punishment. As God, um, fully sufficient to satisfy um, the, the debt that we owe. So, Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for what Christmas represents. Uh, we thank you that you are a God who saves his people. And we thank you for giving us a picture of that this morning. Um, and in the baptism of Ben and Jen. We thank you for giving us this symbol of, of being buried with Christ and raised with Christ in, in baptism. And Father, we thank you for what you've done in, in their hearts in saving them. And in the hearts of these, these five people that you have brought um, into, into fellowship with us. Father, we thank you and pray that you would continue to do that. Work in this room right now by your spirit, Father. Um, I pray that you would save sinners. Father, that you would sanctify sinners that you have already saved, and that you would use and apply these truths into all of our hearts, and, and just draw us closer to your, your great Son, um, to whom we owe everything, and to whom we pray gets all the glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.